Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live, on tape, during week 52 of quarantine, from my eight-year-old son's bedroom in rapidly gentrifying Culver City, adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of not much. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, direct from Hong Kong, as read in The Atlantic, Bloomberg, and many more esteemed publications, as well as the author of a book entitled Superpower Interrupted, the Chinese history of the world. Hello and welcome, Michael Schumann. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for uh, for joining me. Now, as somebody, how long have you been in Hong Kong? Uh, well, I've only gotten to Hong Kong recently, though. In, in, previously, I lived here for nine years, uh, and I've actually been in Asia since 1996 in different cities. So, I've been out here for a while. So, what is the mood in Hong Kong in regard to the future of any sort of autonomy for the citizens of Hong Kong? Yeah, I'd, I'd say the mood here is, is kind of sullen. Uh, it's, uh, you know, I think people are actually kind of shocked at how quickly the government in Beijing has, has moved to kind of squash the uh, pro-democracy movement here and how aggressively and, and actually how substantially society is already changing here. Uh, you know, the, the national security law that Beijing imposed on the city is quite vague. Uh, people really are not clear as to what's allowed, what's not allowed. Uh, and, you know, you've seen some major figures in, in the city already get arrested, elections were put off. And, and uh, so I, I think people are kind of afraid about the future of the city, the future for themselves. A lot of people are talking about uh, emigrating. I don't know if they actually maybe will in the end, but it's a very, very big topic of discussion here among all kinds of people, uh, locals and, and foreigners. Uh, so, you know, unfortunately what's happened here, this is this has been a year of tragedies, and, and unfortunately this is another one that's going on here in Hong Kong. The rise of China seems likely to be one of the defining stories of the 21st century. Like many people, I have regarded the rise of China, at least for a few years now, to superpower status as a near certainty. And I personally regard that possibility with a degree of concern, I would honestly say at times bordering on fear, fear of what a China-led world might look like, fear of what an unfettered China might be capable of, fear of how America and American politics would cope or not cope, as the case may be, with uh, being challenged on the world stage, being equaled, perhaps even being surpassed. You have indicated you are less sure than many that China's rise is inevitable. You recently wrote an article entitled, Don't Believe the China Hype. Well, I don't believe in historical inevitabilities. Uh, you know, there's, well, I think it was Benjamin Franklin who said nothing is certain but death and taxes and uh, becoming a superpower I don't believe was on his list. Uh, you know, I, I mean, it depends on, on how you want to look at it and what your historical time frame is. I mean, one thing that makes Chinese history pretty amazing is how often the Chinese 
uh, political elite were able to rebuild China into a great power. You know, China wasn't was a superpower for large large stretches of human history, but wasn't always. Uh, dynasties would fall, and the country got invaded, and bad things happened, of course. But again and again and again, the Chinese were able to rebuild themselves in, 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 into a power. And if you want to put what's going on today into, into that perspective, then there is something of an inevitability about it. I mean, China's been a great power, and it probably will be again. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen at this moment, and it won't necessarily happen under this uh, under this government. There's been lots of false starts in Chinese history as well. People who wanted to create dynasties, lasting dynasties, and failed. So uh, even if you think of China's rise because of its history, because of its size, as something inevitable, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that the current leadership is on the right course. I mean, there's a lot of concerns about that, both inside and outside the country, uh, based on what China, where Chinese policy is headed both in its foreign policy, its politics, and also its economic policy. Uh, it's, it's not clear that China is really heading in the direction that it needs to go in order to keep its, its economic growth going, in order to kind of keep its rise going. What would be a, a specific that you would point to if I were to tell you, you know, looking 10 years into the future, this was indeed, this government was a false start for them returning to that kind of status. What would you guess had been the Achilles heel, so to speak, of the current government? Well, you know, there's a, a couple things that stand out. I mean, one is the direction that, that economic policy is taking. I mean, what it turned China into the second largest economy in the world was free market reform, was the withdrawal of the state from the economy and giving private enterprise and uh, entrepreneurs more, more freedom. Uh, it was opening to trade, opening to foreign investment. I mean, that, that's, that's how China became what China is today. But what you've seen in roughly, I'd say, the last five, six years or so is a, is a pretty dramatic shift towards more state-led economic initiatives, a greater role for state enterprises, a greater intrusion by the state and state planners. Uh, basically, free market reform is more or less, uh, hasn't entirely stopped, but it's, it's slowed to a, to a trickle. Uh, and, you know, you don't see uh, China opting into the world in, in, in the way that it used to. So they're really engaging in a tremendous economic experiment. I mean, uh, the current leadership thinks that this is what they need to do to put them over, over the hump to become a truly advanced, rich economy. But a lot of economists are really not sure about that, and it is a break with their past. And, you know, I think I'd add as, as part of that, uh, I think what's going on between China and the United States is not really good for China's rise either. Uh, you know, the, the U.S. played a tremendously important role in China's economic development, and uh, the, China still relies on the U.S. In, in many ways for technology, primarily, but also as an important market. Uh, and, and kind of heading into this conflict with the U.S. at this stage just doesn't seem to be the, the, the smartest thing to do if you're trying to, to turn your economy from a, what's really a middle-income economy, still very poor in many ways, into kind of a truly advanced te uh, technological power. Uh, you know, fighting with the U.S. is probably not really the best way to go right now. Well, how much of that was their decision? There are many people, particularly on the right, who would say that uh, successive U.S. administrations, both from the left and the right, coddled China, you know, the, the that there were these faulty assumptions about what our policy could achieve. Is, are things coming to a head because Donald Trump has essentially said they have to come to a head now? Uh, well, you know, that's a great question. Uh, I, I think when people look at what's happening between the U.S. and China, uh, they, uh, 
come to the conclusion that this is kind of Donald Trump's war, right? This is Donald Trump's trade war, for instance. Uh, obviously, uh, the Trump administration played a tremendous role in reorienting American policy towards China. And I think to a certain extent, woken up uh, uh, the United States uh, in terms of its followed policy establishment, its business leaders, to the, the, the challenges and the threat that China does present to the United States, both economically and strategically. But, you know, having said that, what's going on in the U.S. is really a reaction to a lot of change in China that I don't think has been fully appreciated. Uh, this is not the, the China of 20 years ago. And of course, I don't mean that it's a much richer place, of course, but I mean that in terms of its policy and its outlook. Uh, you know, 20 years ago, this was a society that seemed to be opening up uh, to becoming freer, to having a, a great interest in kind of joining the United States uh, as a partner, to to uh, to immersing itself in the the the, kind of the world order that the U.S. created. Uh, and now that's that under this current leadership, uh, that's becoming less and less true. Where it looks like we have a China that wants to spread its authoritarian values that uh, sees the U.S. as the rival, that isn't opening up anymore, that is actually becoming less free, more oppressive. Uh, so I think a lot of what's going on in the U.S., and it's, you know, it's not just Donald Trump, there's basically the entire political establishment has become very anti-China uh, on all sides of the spectrum. Uh, and I think they're looking at, at, at China and they're realizing that the, the China that we led into the WTO, the China that we cooperated with in the 80s on, on economic reform isn't around anymore. This is a new China, and that's presenting new challenges and, and new threats. And uh, I think Washington is, has, unlike a lot of other countries, has been kind of on the forefront of realizing that. Like everyone, nearly everyone who's going to listen to this, I received a thoroughly Eurocentric education on history, uh, and that's where your book comes in. For people who want to know where China's going, it's essential to know where they're coming from, just as the West's understanding of itself rests on, you know, the myths and the histories of the Bible and Rome, etc. China has its own self-image, and it's easy for us to forget about that based in their own understanding of their own past. I want to tell you the two takeaways that I had from the book, and you tell me if, if, if I'm right about this. One is, as you've already touched on, China regards itself as sort of an inevitable superpower. It has been before, it, it has fallen before, and it has pulled itself back up again. You also talk, uh, talk about where the history of China has pointed towards a single sovereign ruler rather than any sort of uh, of democracy. Are those the, the two basic takeaways I was supposed to be getting? Uh, those are two very good takeaways. Yeah, okay. I mean, when, I, I think what's interesting about China is is not just that uh, they see themselves as an evil great power, but they actually feel that they deserve to be great power. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they've had a sense of kind of that, uh, of that China is a superior civilization, a superior society. This goes back more than more than 2000 years. And they've always perceived the world as, as a hierarchy. Uh, and they believe they should be at the top of, of the hierarchy. And you can see this manifesting itself in, in Chinese policy today. Uh, so so this, is, this is kind of a country that sees itself almost like a nation of destiny, so to speak. Is it too far to say that China openly claims a racial superiority? Well, what I think what, what's, what's interesting about that is that the ideas of, of race is a relatively new idea. Mm -hmm. Right in in uh, Chinese history, uh, when you look back to you know the beginnings of the imperial age, 
which is 2,200 years ago, and, and even, even earlier than that, when you go back to the time of Confucius, which is 2,500 years ago, uh, the Chinese of course, didn't have that conception of themselves as, as, a, as a racial group, right? Right. They saw themselves as, a, as basically a, a people with a common civilization or, or a common culture. So they defined themselves versus other people basically on, on that basis. And they looked around themselves, and they saw a lot of, you know, nomadic tribes and and other less developed societies they you know they weren't these these societies probably weren't let's say writing for instance where the chinese were and uh they came to the the rather logical conclusion that that uh they were superior and they dealt with with other people on that basis basically throughout their entire history uh you know this this concept of these more modern concepts we have of nationalism the idea of nation-state competition, the idea of kind of where the Chinese as a race versus other races, that stuff that's, that's basically somewhat imported, uh, you know, from the West and, and elsewhere that's developed you know, much, much more recently. I mean, there, there's some historians who see the idea of Chinese nationalism that you're talking about developing starting maybe about a thousand years ago. But mm-hmm. I think it became a real factor in Chinese history, really only the last maybe 100 100, 125 years. Okay. Now, obviously, we look at many books from uh, Europe and America that looked at the other, the local tribes, what have you, and saw them as as less than. And, um, you know, I think for the most part, our civilization has outgrown all of that. We, for that matter, we could probably find lots and lots of things from the Middle Ages and so on of Europe talking about why the rightful organization politically was one sovereign under under God, I guess the the question is, I think we can safely say that uh, the Western world has moved out of that conception. Your book doesn't necessarily argue that China has as well. Well, I, it, you know, I think what's what's different in that regard between the West and, and China is that you know the in Western civilization we look back to ancient Greece and the Roman Republic as kind of the the foundations of democracy. And we consider that to be kind of the ideal form of government. And yes, you're right. There was this huge long interim period when things weren't particularly democratic. But you know, it, at least in kind of the the Western Civ view of things, you know, there's roots in democracy in Western civilization. When when you look at Chinese political philosophy and political theory, uh, they don't really have that in quite the same way. And when you look at, for example, Confucian political theory, which really has dominated in China through, through the imperial period, their idea of a perfect government was basically a sage king, you know, uh, a ruler, a, a single ruler, but a, a ruler who was basically so benevolent and wise that uh, the, the public would, would willingly follow him. Uh, this was government that was basically based on on virtue and morality. Uh, it's a very utopian kind kind of concept, uh, but you know that that's a very very different kind of philosophical background to the idea of good government than what we 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 have in the West. So in that regard, historically, the Chinese are kind of accustomed to the idea of having an emperor with 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 basically at least in theory had no limits to to his authority. And would you say that that makes it somewhat easier for the head of a communist party to ascend into that sort of position than they would in other cultures that have different, you know, uh, political myths, so to speak? 
I, you know, I think you you could say on a certain level that society in China is is more willing to accept an an authoritarian government. It's a very, very, very hard statement to make because, of course, we don't really know how the Chinese people feel about their government. Uh, they're not allowed to speak freely. Uh, they, uh, you know, they don't have a free press. Uh, they so you know when there's not like there's independent poll data where you can get a sense of how they feel about their their leadership. Uh, that doesn't mean that there isn't a certain element of support in China for the government. Uh, it it just means it's very hard to tell what's what's inside people's heads. Uh, you know because China and part of its opening up, uh, you know, has uh, had had exposure and experience with democratic ideas. Deals, you know. Look at how many Chinese students study in in the United States. A lot of uh, political reformers at the end, when the when the emperors did did fall at the beginning of the 20th century, a lot of Chinese political reformers looked to the U.S. and Europe and and democratic systems as the the proper direction that China should take. And of course, more recently, there was the uh, democracy movement on on uh, Tiananmen Square in 1989 that got crushed. So. I, uh, uh, it's it, in that sense, the authoritarian government in China may not be as unpopular as I think maybe a, a many Americans would assume. But on the other side, it's not like China, the Chinese aren't interested in demo, in democratic and I, ideals and human rights either. Well said. You have said that the government currently borders on totalitarian um you don't treat you don't seem to treat authoritarianism there as a foregone conclusion again from the outside looking in i hear about things like social credit scores and it seems like that's pretty much a fait accompli you don't see it that way well uh you, you know you're dealing with well uh, to the, the first part of the of the answer to that question is yet i think you have a government that uh, wants to create a totalitarian environment. Uh, you know, this is the government that's using new technologies to basically keep track of what everyone is doing at all times. I mean, we know people who've been called down to the police for questioning and, and they get shown their WeChat messages. Uh, you know, this is the government that's monitoring or trying to monitor what everybody is doing and they're trying to enforce, uh, you know, to a certain extent, ideological conformity uh you know every everybody's supposed to be thinking more or less the same way they don't allow for any kind of real dissent on any major issues so uh that's where the society society is uh is going or at least where the government is intending on taking it you know again having said that you're giving 1.4 billion people uh and uh not all 1.4 billion people feel the same way and think the same way so the idea that you can have a state whatever technology that it has that's capable of controlling the the thinking and, and activities of that large a population with that diverse a population is somewhat startling. Uh, again, it's one of, it's it's a fascinating experiment in, in 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 government, and we'll we'll see where it goes. But you know, you're dealing with a, a government that's becoming more and more oppressive at a time when its its people are becoming to a certain extent more and more global. Uh, and Chinese Chinese are are travel more. They study more overseas. They're exposed more to the outside world than they they were in the past. So, you have these two conflicting themes going on in Chinese society right now. Anecdotally, I've encountered people who were 
Chinese who came and studied here and you are so tempted to uh, fall for this or, you know, believe in this Coca-Cola diplomacy of, well, now that you've been here, you can see that there's certain advantages to the Western style of living. And I, what I've heard back is, yeah, this is great, but it'll, this would never work in China. This will never happen in, in China. The assumption of our foreign policy, I think more than the assumption, the statement was that um, with growing wealth and with growing exposure to Western culture, we would in, uh, inevitably help create the seeds of democracy in China. How sure are we that the dream of that vision, that policy is dead? Well... <sighs> Uh, you know, I don't buy this idea that that China can't be democratic. I mean, it it doesn't make any it doesn't make any sense. I mean, look at the variety of societies that have successfully adopted uh, democratic practices around the world. When you look at what's gone on in India, another very large country uh, that's generally quite poor, they've they've seemed to have done quite well uh, with a, a democratic system. And I think more interestingly, the societies around China that basically share aspects, historical aspects of Chinese culture and civilization. Look what's gone on in South Korea, for instance, which is an incredibly stable democracy, uh, which has a similarly, uh, you know, Confucian-backed uh, culture, similar political history uh, in regard where it was, it was usually, uh, you know, in a, uh, a, a, a dynasty with, with, with an emperor. Look what's gone on in Taiwan, which is a Chinese society uh, with a very, very vibrant democracy. Uh, so, the idea that somehow the Chinese, because of their history or because of their culture or because of what, whatever's gone on here, somehow cannot be democratic is somewhat ridiculous. Uh, you know, and, and I think the government knows that. Why is this government in Beijing now in the 21st century, after all the success that they've had in rebuilding the country and improving people's lives, why do they feel the need to become more repressive? Uh, at this stage. You would think that, that logically it would be the opposite, that they would be feeling more comfortable, but they're not. And I think part of that is a reaction to knowing that their people have become more exposed to different ideas and fearful about what that means for the Communist Party going forward. As I understand it, uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo recently went to the Nixon Library to make a speech that effectively said, Nixon was wrong. Nixon probably should never have engaged with China in the first place. Am I am I wrong about that? That's that's the gist of what I got about what yeah. his statement was. <laughs> no, that basically what it well, you know, the the Pompeo thinking and it's become the thinking of a large number uh, of people in Washington right now, uh, in government and out of government, is that, you know, this whole engagement with China thing was just basically a liberal fantasy mm -hmm. that, you know, all we did was create uh, uh, this authoritarian monster, which is, you know, richer and more powerful than it ever would have been if, if we hadn't engaged with them. Uh, but you know what, that's a lot of, you know, hindsight uh, rewriting of, of history. You know, when you think about how different things were when Nixon was around, you're in the middle of the Cold War. You're in this this colossal struggle with with the Soviet Union and, and communism. Uh, and here's China that looks like having having its own conflict, the Soviet Union, uh, that looks like it's a potential partner in in this struggle. Uh, and I think you also have to look at the in the, the successes that this engagement policy has has had as well. Uh, where the you know the, the benefits to American business, for instance, uh, the uh, the the tremendous poverty alleviation that's gone on in, in China uh, because of it. I mean, this this wasn't a totally failed policy. 
uh, now we, because of the changes in China, we were talking about this earlier, mm -hmm. because China has changed and China's direction has changed. Now we look back and say, oh, gee, we should have known this from the start. Uh, but, you know, that's, that's, it, that's an easy thing to say now looking back. Uh, it's a much harder thing to determine at the time. Sure. All that having been said, if one could theoretically take all of the U.S. manufacturing out of China and plop it in India overnight, and if all of the Hollywood movies could be marketed there just as uh, financially successfully as they are in China, if you could snap your fingers and become no longer intertwined economically with China, would you do that if you could? Uh, well, it it depends on uh, what your what your basis is for making that decision. If you're mm -hmm. doing it entirely on a national security basis, that we've we've decided that China is a strategic enemy, uh, and we want to basically detach ourselves from from China, and uh, you want to impose those costs uh, and that effort onto American companies and American business, then I, I guess you can do that from a purely economic uh basis uh well you have to question is that really the wisest thing to do in terms of uh so the way supply chains work in terms of the amount of money that american companies make in in china and also how far does that process go because you know we do more than manufacture in china we also have for example uh tremendously important local businesses look at the business that starbucks has in china general motors uh, has a massive business in China that, that is more or less, let's say, the most important part of, part of the business right now. Mm -hmm. Look at the business Apple does. Right. Uh, do we want to pull all of these companies out? Uh, is that really the best idea for a U.S. business? Uh, I don't think we know the answer to this this question, actually, and, and I think that's why this debate is continuing to rage in Washington. What really is the best thing to do? Uh, I mean, part of this also is happening naturally, to be honest with you. I mean, even even before Trump, a lot of American companies were realizing that they're overly reliant on their supply chains in China, and we're starting to rejigger them. And, and that may have accelerated slightly now. But, you know, this is also part of a long-term economic process that's basically going to happen naturally to a certain extent on its own. I feel like I can hear people yelling at their radio that what's good for the people who benefit financially from Starbucks, you know, or for, or for Apple means very little to me, a working American. And the price of the economic benefits for those companies is perhaps feeding a monster that is ultimately going to be, you know, a, a strategic issue for, for the U.S. kind of by our own doing. Uh, well, I... The, I think the issues get conflated. Mm -hmm. You know, the issue of, of uh, trade and income inequality get kind of mushed together. Uh, obviously, trade uh, and uh, the related aspects of trade, like offshoring and outsourcing, uh, do have an impact on, on jobs. They have a negative side and a positive side, uh, just like any kind of economic change, just like technological change. Uh, you know, we're, we're doing this on Zoom right now. Uh, this is a new technology. The, you know, the internet has created all kinds of jobs and done all kinds of great things. It's also uh, costs a lot of jobs in other areas. Uh, that's kind of what happens with economic change. Uh, and I, I think what's what's happened is that because of many many factors, uh, we have this tremendously severe income inequality problem in, in the U.S. and and people in the middle class and working classes feel that they're they can't get ahead and they're they're getting a raw raw deal. And for political purposes, uh, 
politicians are, are focusing this anger at trade and foreign countries. And that is a part of the story, but that is just part of the story. I mean, when you think about it, yeah, the U.S. has lost uh, something in the neighborhood. This is off the top of my head. I believe it's like six million manufacturing jobs. Uh, there are six million fewer people working in manufacturing, roughly, now than there were in the 1970s. But, you know, this is a, a country of 330 million people. Those jobs are lost over several decades. So it's just not rational to think that the problems that the middle class is having right now is due to the loss of six million jobs uh, when millions, tens of millions of other jobs have been created in other sectors. So unfortunately, I feel that people in, in Washington are using trade as a scapegoat uh, to avoid making much harder decisions about the way the U.S. economy works. Uh, TikTok, the app, is the is the hot topic with in regard to China du jour. You tweeted uh, a couple weeks ago, if the problem of protecting data from China is serious enough to ban a popular Chinese app, then it requires a solution much more comprehensive than banning a Chinese app. So if we, well, I guess, first of all, how concerned are you that China does by hook or by crook want to harvest massive amounts of data on Americans and be able to target specific American individuals? And uh, assuming you're somewhat concerned about that, what do you do about it? Uh, well, I think that the, the threat China presents the data is very, very real. I mean, they have a long history of, of hacking. Uh, there is a belief among cybersecurity experts in the United States that the Chinese are collecting a data uh, uh, database on Americans. We don't know quite know what the purpose would be for this, but that, that's, that's the, 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 the thinking right now. So the issue is, is a real uh, issue. Uh, the, the, the problem that I have with what's being done right now uh, with TikTok uh, is, is twofold. One, I kind of question uh, the rule of law aspects of kind of using a, a blanket national security rationale towards what is basically appropriating a foreign asset. Uh, I, I, is this really what we want to do as a society that prides itself on free enterprise? Uh, and uh, is, this, is, this, uh, is this really a precedent that we want to set? Uh, that can be used in all kinds of ways against American companies overseas. Uh, but more than that, if this is a serious problem that, that it is, uh, and we really need to protect our, our, our data from China and from other parties, uh, then, you know, just going after one app is just not really not, or one or two apps if you want to include WeChat, you know, this really isn't solving the problem. Something, something bigger has to be done. And, and the, the, I, I'm not a cybersecurity expert. Uh, one idea that's been, that I've heard, which I think is, is a good way of approaching it, is looking at why these internet services and these apps have so much data on us anyway, and not just, not just Chinese apps or whatever foreign apps, but also American uh, apps and internet platforms like Facebook and Google. Why do they have, why are they collecting all this data? Do they really need it? And even more than that, do they need to retain it? Because if China really wants the data, if they can't get it through TikTok, well, then they'll just hack Facebook or they'll just hack Google or, and, and get it that way. So if we're really concerned about the privacy of our data, we have to think much, much more broadly about what kind of data is being kept in the digital space and how best to, to protect it. Right. I, I feel better talking to you because I feel like I'm so much more pessimistic about all these things than you are. And you clearly know so much more about them than I do. But, you know, I just I hear and I, I know I know probably less than you do about cyber issues and cybersecurity. But I've always heard that. You know, what is the saying with a, with, with an app or, or any any kind of website that if you're not paying for it, then you are the product. So 
the question is the answer to the question why does facebook need all this data it's because well data facebook's more than happy to let you play whatever the modern equivalent of farmville is i haven't i haven't been there in a while because your data is so valuable so unless you're going to essentially ask people to pay to use the facebooks of the world and then expect facebook to not find a shady way to still harvest all of our data then it's almost a foregone conclusion that anybody who wants to get massive amounts of data on anybody is going to get it uh eventually yeah i mean it's a great question because of course the whole business model of a lot of these companies is is based on amassing all all, all of this data uh, you know, I, again, I'm not a real cybersecurity expert, I, but I think the, uh, I, I think going forward, uh, we need to find some kind of balance as to, as to how this works, uh, allowing these companies to function in the way that they need to function, while at, at the same time uh, finding a way of, of protecting ourselves from uh, these kinds of security threats. Because look at look at the consequences if this if we continue to go where we're going, okay? Because you know the Recently, you know, a European court also said that, you know, companies in Europe uh, can send data back to the United States and also on, on security grounds. Uh, and of course, the Chinese, of course, close off their, 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 their internet as well. So uh, if we keep heading in the direction we're, we're heading, we're talking about breaking up the internet into various internets, national internets or semi-national internets, uh, and is that that defeats the whole purpose of the internet, and to a certain extent defeats the purposes of these businesses? What would Facebook's market cap be if it was only operating in the United States? Uh, now, I don't think that's it's going to get banned everywhere in the world. But if this is the route where where we're we're heading, we're looking at different kind of constraints on these businesses that hurt their finances anyway. So. We have to find an, an answer to this problem that, one, allows ordinary people to use the Internet in the way they want and give them the maximum freedom to use the Internet, uh, and two, allow these businesses to function, can continue to grow and, and innovate, and three, somehow protects our data from the Chinese and Russians and, and, and others. If I had an answer to that question, I'd be a much smarter person than I am. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think this is, the, this is the challenge that I think we're – what we're facing right now. How do you balance all, all of these interests? Uh, and I, I think the debate on this is just getting started, uh, to be honest with you. I don't think anybody really has the, there's no, there's no silver bullet here. I think it's going to be a tremendous amount of experimentation uh, to see how, how, this, how the, this, this plays out. But what worries me with this TikTok thing is just we're just heading in the absolute wrong direction, yeah. where we have the state coming in saying, here's what you can and can't do on, on the internet. We really don't want that, I don't think. No, 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 no. It, it, it seems like a bit of hysteria to focus or political grandstanding at the, the least to focus on on the one app and ignoring the, the larger issues. Speaking of these cyber issues, I have read that for all the attention that Russian interference may have, uh, for the role it may have played in the last election, many people believe that China's interference was far greater. Uh, to answer you, I, I don't know enough on, the, on that subject uh, to really have a, a strong opinion on it, to, to, uh, to be honest. But, you know, uh, we, we do focus a lot on, on you know, Russian uh, mis misinformation and, and the impact it has on elections and, and other things. But, you know, the, the, the Chinese are equally guilty here. And, and a lot of it, to be honest with you, has become quite open. I mean, when you look at uh, the way Chinese uh, uh, diplomats, the Chinese government, uh, Chinese uh, um, uh, state media organizations, how they've, they're using Twitter and other 
uh, other open platforms uh, to, to push all kinds of crazy ideas uh, and to push uh, authoritarian values to, uh, to undermine uh, the, 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 the uh, uh, U.S. and its, its image in the world. Uh, you know, this, this idea of authoritarian states using our open platforms, our basic freedom of speech, uh, and our free forums to undermine those very values is a very, very serious problem. Uh, and again, it's one of these things that, gee, I wish I had a solution uh, for it. You know, do you, sometimes I think Twitter should actually be banning uh, these Chinese accounts, these official Chinese accounts. Uh, on, on the other hand, it's like, well, then we're basically guilty of doing what the Chinese do. Is that really, do we want to protect our values by undermining our values? You know, so it right, and the, and the answer you know, is all, and the answer is always sometimes. No, no, I it it's again, it's one of these unanswerable. It's it's almost an unanswerable question. It's a matter of what trade offs do we do we really want to make? And I don't know if we, as a society, we haven't come to that conclusion. Would you assume that China has a favorite in the forthcoming U.S. election? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I I, I know uh, the intelligence community in Washington has recently said they think that the the Chinese are backing Biden. I I. I don't quite know what evidence they're, they're using on that, but uh, it's hard to say. There's some thought leaders in, in China, uh, especially the editor of the Global Times here, which is an uh, influential newspaper who's come out quite openly saying that China would rather have Trump uh, because uh, it's it, it basically because he thinks they think he's bad for the U.S. presence in the world, and that therefore is it's good for China. Uh, there's the other thinking that they're they're so fed up with dealing with Trump that they're they're hoping that a Joe Biden presidency would somehow be softer or easier to deal with. Um, what I what I think is uh, that I, I think Donald Trump presents both challenges and opportunities for them. Uh, you know, I, obviously he's taken a very aggressive anti-China stance. On the other hand, because he's withdrawn in many ways from the world, he's withdrawn from international institutions, uh, he's, he's, uh, he's soured relations with most of America's closest allies, he's generally is withdrawn from diplomacy in Asia. The Chinese look at this and say, hey, you know what, this is actually pretty good for us because he's creating space in the world that we can very easily insert ourselves into. I mean, look what's happened at the World Health Organization, for instance. Uh, you know, so it, it's 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 hard it's hard to know. I, I think that I think the reality of it is that whoever wins, I don't think China is going to get much of a break. I think this harder line on China has become so entrenched in both political parties that I think you may get a change in tone, you may get a change in maybe some very specific policies, but I don't think you're going to get much of a change of direction. I'm not sure that the people in Beijing are aware of that yet, that the problem they're dealing with with Washington is not Trump anymore. It's much, much broader than that, and, and it's something that's here to stay, and they have to find a, a better way of dealing with than they are. Uh, let me throw something at you that may or may not be crazy. I, I know some people who deal with people who deal in manufacturing and shipping and what have you in China, mainland, you know, Hong Kong, etc., and some of those people matter-of-factly talk about making preparations just in case there's a military skirmish in the China Sea between uh, China and the U.S. That seems like it'd be a pretty juicy tidbit to throw out in the American press, and yet I hear nothing about it here. From what I gather, it's fairly common knowledge that that's something that could happen imminently to, to Chinese people who read the newspaper. Am I crazy? 
Well, the South China Sea is one of those uh, potential flashpoints that so far, thankfully, has stayed only potential, similarly with Taiwan. Uh, I mean, what you have going on in South China Sea is, you know, the, the Chinese government has basically claimed almost all of this waterway, which is incredibly important for global trade. Uh, and uh, the basically all of his neighbors have contested these these claims. So you have a very tense situation there uh, between China and his neighbors on a regular basis. And then you have Washington sending in basically naval naval ships to the region to basically uh, enforce you know the rule of the sea and and freedom of shipping. Uh, no one wants to start shooting at each other. The U.S. and the, the goal of the U.S. policy is not to start shooting at the Chinese, and the Chinese most certainly don't want to start shooting at the Americans. I think the issue is that when you have these naval vessels in the area, obviously in a very tense situation, uh, who knows uh, what accidents can, can take place. Uh, and then actually you do start shooting at each other, and then where does that go from there? Uh, and so I think that's the scary part of, of what's going on in the, in the South China Sea, that the Chinese are getting increasingly strident on, on this issue and increasingly emotional about it. Uh, and uh, it's, it's a big part of domestic Chinese propaganda that this is, their, this is theirs and everybody should basically should stay out. It's their land. It's their water. Uh, so it, it's, it's, one of these, it's one of these ugly things I think a lot of Americans don't know about that's going on and and hopefully americans will never have to know about it indeed um i don't expect that you would know a whole lot more about unsavory things that may be happening in mainland china just because you're seven thousand miles closer to the action than i am but based on what you know or what you've heard americans who are paying attention have a certain conception of concentration camps in china do you think there's anything about that that we are not getting or do we have a pretty clear idea of what those are all about uh we have a pretty good idea uh, of what's going on that the chinese are rounding up their you know minority uyghur community this is the turkish people that live primarily out in in in, in the far west and they're throwing them into what's effectively a gulag system uh, you know, we don't know the exact numbers. There's been various estimates put out. Was a, a million is a number that gets thrown out uh, quite quite often. Uh, so you know, we don't know the specifics in that regard. But we have a pretty good general picture of this. And and you know, in the Chinese say that there these people are basically a you know a security threat, and they're being basically re-educated and retrained. Uh, but you know, this this looks very much like you know the old gulags and and Siberia in the Soviet days. Now these these are they're out in the middle of the desert. Uh, but you know this is really one of the great human human rights abuses of of current times, uh, and the, the scale upon you know that this is happening on is is huge. Uh, and some people are actually afraid that some of the tactics that are being used uh, to corral this and you know these minorities uh, and monitor these people are basically being taken. To China nationally, this is basically a test case for controlling the entire Chinese population. So it, it's pretty scary stuff. This is another absolutely unanswerable question, but to just try to to try to chip away at the stone a little bit. What, if anything, not should the world do? Can the world do about that? Because not to defend the indefensible, but I've often heard that because. America prides itself and the West prides itself on, you know, promoting our values abroad, that very often the case is 
that when uh, our diplomats meet with, say, Chinese diplomats, there's sort of this uh, little slap on the wrist, five-minute conversation at the beginning. Well, it's my it's my obligation to tell you that as Americans, we don't approve of this, that, and the other thing. And China's like, yeah, yeah, we get it. And then they say, okay, and now anyway, back on to business. You know, and that that's the extent, well, that's know, the extent of exporting values. Look, it's it's very difficult to get the the government in Beijing to to change what it's doing domestically sure. in the security space, uh, whatever action we're going to take. Uh, I think one of the better things the Trump administration and Congress have done with China recently uh, it has been imposing sanctions in regards to Xinjiang, imposing sanctions on companies that have, that have been allegedly involved in creating and, and these uh, detention camps and, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, uh, helping in the way that they're that they're run, uh, sanctions on uh, officials that have been involved in this. Uh, so I, I think the Trump administration has taken a strong stand on this that deserves to be taken. I think I wish more countries around the world, and especially the Islamic world, to be honest with you, uh, these are their fellow Muslims that, that this is happening to. Uh, I wish that that more countries were more outspoken on this issue, and then then maybe. You, you can pressure China in, in, into into changing or doing or doing something, uh, but no, I don't think it's just talking points. You know, I I, I think the uh, I think you know the Chinese consider this as basically interference in their internal affairs, right? That this is the U.S. trying to hoist their values on uh, onto China. You know, at the same time, if we don't stand up for these people who can't stand up for themselves, who's who's going to do it? And and I think it does have an impact. If diplomats, every time they meet with the Chinese, be like, you know, we don't like this, and a lot of our allies don't like this. Uh, I think the Chinese need to continue to know that. Uh, and I don't know whether it, if it has an effect or not. Uh, I think it still needs needs to be done. I know that uh, that I, I I feel better and I sleep better at night knowing that at least somebody in Washington is at least speaking out and 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 calling attention to this issue, even if they can't actually affect change. At least they're keeping a spotlight on it. So, so maybe this stops China from doing things that are even worse. If I were uh, Japan, I would be particularly concerned about the the rise of China. If you had to speculate, what do you think uh, an unfettered superpower China has in mind for for Japan? You know, it, it, that's a uh, again, you got a great question, which is kind of like you know what kind of superpower would China be? Yes. You know, uh, you know the Chinese like to present themselves as a as a peaceful power. They use the word peaceful development all the time, and they like to kind of look back to their history and claim that they were never an aggressive power. That's of course total nonsense. The Chinese went to war with just about everybody. Uh, so, so uh, you know, over their over their centuries of history. Um, and of course, there's a lot of continued animosity towards Japan, uh, a lot of continued ill will from the Japanese invasion during World War II, and uh, the horrible treatment of the Chinese at at that time. Uh, and you know, there's, there's still continued rivalry in the region between China and Japan. You know, I think what, what's worrying is that you know this is all these all these old passions and rivalries have generally been kept in check since the end of the end of World War II by the United States, by the security system that the U.S. has put in place that have generally kept things pretty, pretty stable out here, more or less. Uh, you know, you have the Vietnam War and so on. But, you know, looking at what could be happening, things have been relatively stable. I think the issue is what happens if the U.S. isn't there anymore, uh, if, if, if these countries begin to doubt the American commitment 
to the region, whether it's a commitment to Taiwan or Korea or Taiwan uh, or, or or Japan. Uh, what what does that then incentivize the, the Chinese to do? We already see the Chinese becoming much much more aggressive in their foreign policy, in their military policy. They're 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 uh, expanding their military drills. They're taking greater action in the waters around Taiwan and and Japan and and Korea. Uh, this is scaring everybody. Uh, where this goes, anybody's guess. I, I'm not going to try to uh, predict the future. But the seeds are there for something very, very ugly going going forward. If China's rise ends up not being as peaceful as they like to to uh, to 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 promise that it's going to be. And by that same token, um, uh, a quote from your book is this uh, national belief that you think exists that quote the indignities inflicted by the Western powers must be avenged. What sort of indignities exactly are we talking about, and what would you suppose the nature of that vengeance might be? Um, it's, you know, it, what you, what you see going on in, in China right now is, is, and in their rhetoric and in their attitude towards the world is that there is actually a lot of anger in it. There's a feeling that, you know, they've been traditionally a great, a great civilization, a great power. And, uh, over the last, you know, roughly two centuries, uh, they've been mistreated by, especially by the Western powers and their allies, which wouldn't include uh a japan you know that's why passions run so high over for example hong kong right this was hong kong was claimed by the british after the opium war uh which ended in 1842 uh and you know when if you if you read the chinese state media you would think that this war happened about six weeks ago uh you know they they keep these wounds rather open for their own domestic political purposes and a big part of the government's message and xi jinping's message it's now it's our turn to rise again to the top. We're never going to be bullied again. We're never going to be, be treated this way. And of course, they don't use the word vengeance. Uh, but you know, that's sure what that sure is what it what it sounds like. So, you know, this is a, a society that that wants to um, uh, a, a country that wants to to regain its top position in the world and to start to dominate its relations with with other countries. Uh, does that mean actually, you know, going to war probably not at least certainly not at, at this stage uh but it does mean that it's it's a country on a mission to right all right all wrongs uh and to do what they think is set the world straight for them normal is a world in which china reigns at the top uh so what they're doing isn't necessarily you know we we think of it as oh this is new this is the rise of china from the chinese perspective this is just a return to where things kind of should be that's right. And that is, by and large, the subject of your book, Superpower Interrupted, the Chinese History of the World. Thank you so much for indulging me and letting me pick your brain on all this stuff. Michael Schumann. Thanks a lot for having me on. I appreciate it. <laughs> 